I hope you didn't think that we've hit peak stupid just quite yet, because despite the fact that Medicare will be insolvent within the decade, Social Security within 16 years, and of course, Congress is doing nothing, and despite the fact that the executive branch is issuing illegal orders, of course, Congress is doing nothing. We're now focused on discussing a magazine cover and a $39 jacket. Excellent. I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth, also a huge Zara fan like the First Lady herself. Sit down and have a drink with us. After a week of literal fake news and political grandstanding, you'll need it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. This week, Tiana and I are drinking a wine entitled Mad Housewife, because undoubtedly... Given, I guess, the tweets and the media reports on uh, Melania's jacket with the I don't care to you going to uh, see what's going on with all the immigration stuff at the border, uh, it's both mine and Tiana's opinion that she is angry with President Trump with his actions on this matter. So in honor of that, we are drinking Mad Housewife Cabernet and pouring one out for our good friend Melania in the White House. Um... On to more pressing matters. Uh, This week, obviously, the big thing is immigration. We couldn't really deny the importance of talking about that, considering it's been swirling around the media, whether it be because of from a policy angle or from the media's actual coverage of it, and then that getting additional attention uh, with the Time magazine cover and everything that ensued. And at the end of our podcast tonight, we will also be talking about Candace Owens and the Me Too movement, as that has sparked some massive controversy as well. So, Tiana, take it away. Yeah, so, okay, to start off with the policy debate when it comes to this recent immigration debacle, I feel like it's important that we clarify what specifically has happened. So, Trump did not initiate any sort of family separation policy. However, what he did do was uh, institute a zero-tolerance policy for aliens found crossing the border illegally, not in official ports of entry on the border. So what's happened here is that as a result of the zero-tolerance policy, the DOJ can prosecute every alien caught crossing the border illegally by DHS with a misdemeanor, and I believe it's then with a felony if they're caught for a second time. So... Back in 2014, I I believe it was 2014, the Obama administration, when they would actually detain um, aliens crossing the border, they would detain parents and children together. And then the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals found that because of the Flores Agreement, which was decided on in 1997, that because keeping children in criminal detainment... Um, could be interpreted as a deterrent that this was unconst or that this was illegal. So then, as a result, all children who are found illegally crossing the border, rather than being held by the Department of Justice or being held by DHS, would be transferred into facilities ran by the Department of Health and Human Services. Because that makes so much sense, right? It's uh, it's not good to detain them with their parents, so let's just detain them without yeah. their parents. So, right. so I, I think it's important to note that it was the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that decided this, and this is one of the most liberal courts in the country. This is, like, the one that repeatedly made sure that the travel ban never got enacted. Um... So so it's just important to understand where this came from. So the intention of that ruling was that 
was that you cannot use this as a deterrent. You cannot use immigration policy as a deterrent, or this, or specifically how children are being kept. And the reason why I bring that up being important is because the White House's messaging on this has been wildly inconsistent. If I were running the Trump White House, knowing what his goals are in mind, and them not being the same as my own, but if I, but if I were, from a strategic perspective, trying to advance his end goal, which is limiting the amount of illegal immigration in this country, what you certainly should not say is have, you should certainly not have Kristen Nielsen going in front of the press and on Twitter saying that there is no policy of child separation and then allowing at the same time Chief of Staff John Kelly going on the record saying that it is a deterrent to have your children ripped away from you. So this is one where I I initially want to just give out balls and strikes to the people who deserve them. So obviously the media has been the one to sort of cast a light on this and it has to do with the fact that right now there are a little over 2,000 children who are being held in these HHS facilities without their parents. Credit goes to Ted Cruz for announcing emergency legislation. That would be a pretty clean Senate bill. It would mandate that families who immigrate illegally must be kept together. It authorizes new temporary shelters, doubles the number of federal immigration judges, I think to like 750 or something, and provides expedited processing of asylum cases to ensure cases are decided on quickly and that families aren't in these detention centers for long amounts of time. And the reason why this matters is because if you are from the southern border, and often people always think it's just Mexican immigrants, it often comes from countries like Guatemala, which have, which have had historically egregious cases of genocide, um, El Salvador, where MS-13 Honduras. originally, yeah, Honduras. So when you have people coming from from not just Mexico, but like other Central American countries with, with very legitimate violence problems, when they come to America seeking asylum, they can do so two ways, legally or illegally. If they come to a port of entry, that is them legally seeking asylum, and they will probably not face criminal proceedings. However, our asylum process is complicated enough where if they are denied, that then then they're stuck on the other side of the Mexican border, and that's if they make it to Mexico, which we, which which the southern border of Mexico is also very hard to get past. Now, if they decide now if they decide to cross the border illegally, so through an, so not through a port of entry. Then, when they get caught by DHS, they can either claim asylum, and then those are when the proceedings take a long time. And that's then with with the Flores Agreement, where where, where legally the government cannot keep children in detainment for longer than twenty days. And when you apply for for asylum after being criminally detained as an adult, it will the proceedings will definitely take longer than 20 days. And that's the brunt of, of those of these kids who are talking about being separated from their parents. This is the case. It's their parents have crossed the border illegally. They, in many cases, have claimed asylum, and then their kids are sent to these HHS facilities. Mind you, there are, there are over 10,000 kids also being held in these facilities who are not separated from their parents at all. They're, these are usually older teenagers. These are, not, these are not the same kids that we see who are like, as some as young as eight months, I believe. That's the earliest reported age. Um, but just to clarify, that's the actual policy situation that's going on. Well, another thing that I'd like to add to that in terms of policy and something that has definitely exacerbated this issue of family separation at the borders has been not only was a zero-tolerance policy instituted for illegal border crossings, but along with that, you have Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions 
putting in the mandate that the United States is no longer accepting gang violence and domestic violence as reasonable excuses for asylum, which are the majority of the reasons why people flee those countries. Um, So effectively, by introducing those two caveats, you're basically taking away any any excuse, any form of something that someone can advocate for at the border to seek asylum, because those are the two main reasons. I mean, it's, I'm hard-pressed to really find any other reasons why someone be, would be trying yeah. to flee a country for asylum, which has put these immigrants in very difficult predicaments, uh, because people who were maybe trying to come to the border at a legal point of entry and seek asylum— Word is spreading south across the the migrant routes that this is not something that's acceptable. So now these people, if you're coming from Central America and you're in Mexico right now in kind of a standstill in the middle with nowhere to go, you can't go back to your home country for fear of violence. And let me tell you, these these threats are are imminent and they are they're very real to a lot of people. And to, I I would imagine, and from what the reports have been, to the grand majority of people who are trying to flee. And so. I think what you see is now a lot of people trying to make the, the, the risky decision, well, if I can't come in legally, maybe I can come in illegally and not get caught. And so I don't think the Trump administration has really been doing themselves any favors. They're trying to say that they want to limit illegal immigration, yet their policies are only encouraging that because their policies are not inclusive enough and they're not promoting people to come across legally, declare themselves, and go through the regular traditional process. Um, I mean, no doubt about it, I think it's been very heartbreaking to understand what the government has been doing in regards to separating these children at the border. I'm happy that an executive order was placed to stop this practice, and now we're kind of moving back to Obama-era legislation. I know that a lot of Republicans have been talking about Democrats being outraged, uh, you know, Trump signed the executive order, but then being outraged that these people are not given an easier pathway to citizenship, that they will still be detained. And then the Republican rebuttal is that, well, this is an Obama-era policy. I agree with that. Um, I think the first and foremost priority for the Democrats should be ensuring that these children aren't separated. However, along with that, what I would like to add is that, yes, children were detained under the Obama administration, but they were detained if they crossed by themselves. So they didn't have anyone to pair them up with. And so these facilities still existed under the Obama administration, yet under very different circumstances. So most often these were teenagers who crossed by themselves, who are maybe like sent by their parents to come and try to find a better life in the United States. And obviously you can't let unaccompanied, unaccompanied minors roam around the U.S. Um, this case with family separation is a lot different. As Tiana mentioned, you see children that are eight months separated from their parents, and that's something that should not be happening. Um, it's going to be interesting to see where things go down the road with these 2,000-plus kids that are now needing to be reunited with their family. I mean, I think the Trump administration has honestly given themselves a nightmare in terms of processing all these people. The court systems are going to be clogged up. It's just going to be crazy to see where this goes. And, I mean, this has to do with the fact a lot of things here. So one, I think that the focus on the physical wall and all the conversation about the physical wall is so not productive for Trump's immigration policy simply because I understand and disagree with the idea that 
that that Trump's entire platform in which he ran was about the idea of limiting illegal immigration as much as possible. And that's, you know what? That mandate won. I didn't support it, but that mandate won. And he has a popular mandate as the president of the United States to curb illegal immigration. That being said, from a, from a strategic perspective, this was rolled out as improperly as possible. I mean, zero tolerance policies are rarely a good idea, but even but even the spirit of the policy in mind, which is to end Obama era catch and release uh, policies, which is totally fair because let's be real: if you have someone, if if word gets out that illegal immigrants would get caught by DHS and then immediately released and told to go to to their trials and something like only 60% of them would actually show up. Yeah, then of course it would it would impel more immigrants to come to the country illegally. But Avery, I, I really agree with what you're saying with regards to making it harder to seek asylum in cases that I think any reasonable person would assume it is fair to seek asylum if you are the victim of gang violence or domestic violence. Um, that it, these that doesn't lend itself well to making a very good moral argument. That being said, we are a nation of laws, we are a nation with borders, and every nation deserves its right to sovereignty. And that's why I think, like, when you have, like, DSA and all these people who are saying abolish ICE, we don't need borders. That's not true. We do need borders. You don't want... You want to be able to vet this country, at the very least, for criminals. As an economic libertarian, my argument goes, I would much rather just use the immigration debate as a case to reduce the amount of welfare and reduce the amount of public spending we 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 grant for programs that that involve minimal vetting because if that's the case then let everyone into the country because they will follow where there is increased job market demand and then they will leave when there is decreased job market demand but since that is not the case since the Trump administration clearly wants to curb as much illegal immigration as possible they're within their rights to enforce it however it is horrible not only just from a PR perspective, but ethically to institute this policy and have and and not think about the specifics of instituting it. Having this policy change where you just have these facilities that the reports seem to conflict. Some of the some of the facilities seem to be very well staffed, some of them seem to be poorly staffed. However, it my understanding is that between the ProPublica audio tape that was released of the ICE agents and reports that in some of these facilities, adults aren't even allowed to touch the children. If you have an eight-month-old, who changes the diaper? And so that that's why, that's why, obviously, it is better for children to be detained with their parents. And then you have Kamala Harris coming out as soon as Trump signs the executive order saying, no, but the kids can't be in jail at all. What do you want? And so then just admit that you just want catch and release. I think that you and I, in good faith, want families to not be separated because we understand it's extremely traumatizing for a three-year-old to be separated from their parents through no fault of their own. However, if you are a parent not coming in through a legal port of entry, you know the risk that you're taking. And I'm not saying punish the kids, which is why I'm saying keep the kids with the parents and make these... And I agree with Ted Cruz's proposal. Which was the whole ethos, by the way, behind DACA to begin with. Yeah, yeah. And and I totally agree with Ted Cruz's proposal in terms of doubling the amount of judges who who are just focused on these cases so you don't have kids and parents in detainment for for months on end. You know, obviously like that is cruel and these are not violent criminals. These are people who are breaking the law, but they are not they are not the most egregious offenders of breaking the law. But I think that there are some portions of the left that honestly just wish we were just a nation without borders. And that to me 
as 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 still as as libertarian as I am, I think we need borders because we of course we need to vet to make sure we don't have criminals coming into our country. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I also think. I obviously understand that people on the left are advocating for that, and I think it's less because of their wholehearted belief in that we shouldn't have borders and that there should be catch and release, and more because they view it as a political opportunity. And not only are people on the left um, creating debates over immigration, probably on this political opportunity, seeing how much this was a bipartisan, um, I just think— Everyone, in terms of a bipartisan perspective, was up in arms over this. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, except for— I mean, you had Laura Bush coming out in the Except for the a few Republicans yeah. who I think should have been. Um, but I think on all accounts, uh, even some Republicans that I didn't necessarily ex- expect to really be outspoken about it, some people who have been, you know, Trump's allies for the longest time were outspoken about this. And to me, obviously, I don't want— to question their motives behind that. But I do question to some degree all these people that have been in, you know, have kind of held their tongue against Trump the entire time and been on his side. I think they saw the pummeling that he was getting and came out and spoke out about this because they knew it going into the 2018 midterms, that's going to look good to their bases. And that fact can't be denied. I think there's a moral argument, but there's there's also the political expedience argument too. And the same can be made on the Democratic side of things. I think if this debate never occurred over um, family separations and it never existed, you wouldn't see the same rhetoric from Democrats advocating for no catch and release, basically no borders, because we're going back now to an Obama um, an Obama administration policy, which no Democrats were really necessarily speaking out at the time. Yeah. Um, I think more than that, though, which th- this really has highlighted the most, has been the moral argument and where do where do morals play into politics? Where does humanity play into politics, and what's that line? And I think before the Trump presidency. We kind of had this universal belief of what that line was. And I think clearly as a result of these events, that line has been severely blurred. I mean, regardless of the backlash that Trump received for this policy, there were also many people that were in support of it. I mean, Fox and Friends host Brian Kilmeade, he was advocating for this policy pretty much on, um, I guess it was Friday morning's episode. He said, like it or not, these aren't our kids. Show them compassion, but it's not like he's doing this to the people of Idaho or Texas. These are people from another country, and now we're saying that they're more important than our people who are paying taxes. At the end of the day, should it matter if it's a kid from Texas being pulled from their parent, or should it matter if it's a kid from Honduras being pulled away from their parent as a toddler, someone with no voice? In my opinion, I really don't think so, but this has brought those kind of moral arguments into question, which has been interesting to see develop. Yeah, I mean, with that, I I, I agree with you in the sense that, again, we're not talking about... There are obviously two conversations here, one in which I absolutely agree with and one in which I absolutely don't. If someone from the hard left is coming to me and saying, well, we owe it to this fully rational adult who willingly broke a law, coming here not seeking asylum from violence, but but asylum from economic turmoil or whatnot, something we'll get into in a moment, then I would say, no, we don't owe them anything. They, 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 chose, to broke the, they chose to break the law, and they didn't have a legitimate reason. They didn't have a legitimately legal reason to come here. With children, people who were brought here through no fault of their own, 
how on earth can you justify them being alone in facilities with no with with in some cases again i know that the reporting is still really up in the air in terms of the quality of the facilities how do you not ha- how do you not say that we have we have a ethical mandate to make sure that they are treated at the very least fairly these yeah. are children who did not choose to come here and that's i think where we can get into a much bigger argument about about immigration and daca and amnesty as a whole but 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 from a from a moral culpability perspective there's a massive difference between an adult and between a child and then also just just to bring up two other things one which is something that i think a lot of people have been talking about but probably in less detail than we should be the role of the executive branch is not to create laws but rather to execute them and the fact that trump did this executive order first means that means that the courts will probably immediately rule against it just as they did when obama tried to do this and it the onus is on congress to 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 craft a workable bill to make sure that kids are brought back together with their families that's why I really do laud Senator Cruz for doing this, and I think it's disgusting that Senator Schumer rejected by saying, there's so many obstacles to legis- legislation, and when the president can do it with his own pen, it makes no sense. That so clearly is just saying, this is bad PR for the Trump administration, which means we're going to let this issue go on for longer. And I have genuine sympathy for these kids, and I want to see them brought back together with their parents as quickly as possible, even if I'm not someone who's saying, give everyone amnesty, because it's not the kids' fault and they deserve to be with their parents. So when Senator Schumer does this, it's quite frankly disgusting. Yeah, and I mean, well, this is what I've been saying, you know, since the DACA debate really came into question and took place. I mean, how can Democrats really say... That they and I'm a Democrat speaking here. How can Democrats really say that we are the party who is going to have immigrants' backs when it it comes down to it, we're not willing to bite the bullet and make stuff happen for them? Because regardless of you know political expediency, regardless of taxpayer dollars, regardless of funding, at the end of the day, those are all monetary or medial measures. But at the end of the day, this is the livelihood of thousands of people. You saw it with the livelihood of 700,000 DACA people when, in February, Democrats had a chance to come to the table with Trump and try to come to a resolution, and all they had to do was reach their hand across the line and handshake and protect Dreamer status for 700,000 people. And in my opinion, that is far more important to me than... What was proposed at the time, $21 billion in wall funding was the concession that they had to make. Because at the end of the day, Democrats could say, okay, you know what, we're going to concede that for now because these are the lives of 700,000 people. That's dollar amounts. This isn't the livelihoods of 700,000 people and what is going to go on and impact them for the rest of their lives. That's just money that can be made. And I would have reached my hand across the table, shook for the deal, and then waited till the 2018 midterms when, if I'm a Democratic strategist, hopefully they have the House, and then they can reverse that law or pass legislation that inhibits some of that funding. But at the end of the day, when given the opportunity, they turn their back on the Dreamers. And so at this point, immigration and the votes from immigrants and, I think, minority groups in the United States is still very up for, up for grabs. I don't think it's as much of a locked vote as Democrats think it is going into 2018, and nor do they have, does, uh, do immigrants have 
the support of Republicans. And so someone's got to come down to it and bite the bullet and say, let's make something happen because at the end of the day, these are people. And this is what we're losing sight of. And I think the longer these children sit in a detention center, the more damage that is going to cause to them. And I think no matter where you come from, we're all human beings. And to some degree, we need to still understand that and look out for each other. I mean, this isn't about partisanship, in my opinion. There was a report just issued at the end of May from the ACLU um, with 30,000 pages of documents. These were dated between 2009 and 2014, and they were regarding numerous cases of violence and abuse against migrant children um, who arrived to the United States and had been held in detention centers. Um, as I was saying before, children that have come to the United States alone and had to be held in, de- in detention centers under the Obama administration. Obviously, in my opinion, the Obama administration was slightly handcuffed in that regard. I mean, what are you supposed to do when a child comes to this country with no parents and no documentation? However, at the end of the day, what can be said is that these kids need to be processed as quick as possible, and we should be avoiding at all costs putting them there. These were 30,000 documents that were fi- that were obtained in a lawsuit under the Freedom of Information Act, and they just show numerous cases involving federal officials, verbal, physical, and sexual abuse against migrant children. And honestly, I've looked through some of them because ACLU um, releases it all on their website, but they go basically from punching a child in the head three times to running over a 17-year-old with a patrol vehicle and punching him several times in the face um, to using a stun gun on a boy under the age of 10 to denying a pregnant minor medical attention when she reported pain and proceeded in having a stillbirth. And the list goes on and on and on. So something needs to be done here. There needs to be a greater sense of urgency. I think If you're going to talk about a win on this issue, which I don't think anyone's winning, I think the only people who are losing are these families that are being separated. But if you're going to talk about the win, yeah, sure, Democrats have that moral quote-unquote high ground over Republicans because this occurred under the Trump administration. But they are losing that minute by minute every time they don't act to come to a deal. And I mean, honestly, this sort of forays into what we're going to talk about second to policy, which is the media coverage of it. But, you know, the Associated Press came out with a report discussing court filings for a a center in Virginia that held um, these alien children. And they they show that these kids, young teenagers, 14 and 15 years old, were basically tortured. They were left with bags over their heads— with holes that they could see through, restrained in a chair, handcuffed. And this was happening during the Obama administration. But the re- the reason why I bring this up specific to the media is that, I mean, I think that given, I'm willing to give genuine benefit of the doubt both to Trump and to Obama that they cannot micromanage every single aspect of how these children are kept. Obviously, it's horrific when they are separated from their parents, and it is horrific when under the Obama administration they're handcuffed and beaten and kept in solitary confinement. However, when the AP reports on this, they don't even mention the word Obama. All they talk about, the only reference to a president they use is Trump, who is currently in the news about about the quality of children being held in these facilities. So you do have, like, the media showing... It's funny. We'll, we'll be talking about fake news soon after this when we talk about the Time magazine cover. But when, but when Trump says fake news, 
it doesn't resonate with the American people because en masse, the media is screwing up major stories and reporting fake details. That's not why. It, it, it happens, and we're going to talk about when it does happen. But it's, 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 it's about the presentation about, of the news, and it's about the selection bias of what does get covered. And in a story like this with the Associated Press, where it's not emphasized at the beginning that we're talking about these youth centers for these alien children— happening during the Obama administration, then it makes it a lot easier for people to engage in tinfoil conspiracies about Soros-owned media and whatnot. And, um, and again, I don't think that, I do not, I genuinely do not think that Barack Obama signed off on kids being treated like this. I'm sure that this happened at a lower level and that if he did ever know about it, that he made actions to try and stop it. Because, mind you, the executive branch is enormous. Too big, if you ask me. But the fact that the media can't just report objectively, court filings demonstrate that during the Obama administration, children at this detention center were subjected to torturous conditions. You're not saying it's Obama's fault. It's just, you know... Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's obviously something that should be reported. And I would like to note that, you know, some of the information that I've even been talking about tonight in regards to the Obama administration, those were from some brilliantly reported articles from publications like Vox, from CNN, um, typically left-wing sources. So this doesn't happen all the time, but it happens often enough to create an impact and to sway public perception but it doesn't just happen on the left it happens on the right as well you see this it with, does. you see this with fox news blatantly omitting facts about the trump administration all the time so both sides are to blame and that's the thing that i would like people to acknowledge the most when i think when we talk about fake news is i think the left gets criticized so severely for fake news because that was a a term coined by President Trump himself from the right. But this is something that happens on both sides. It's something where political bias is playing in way too much into reporters' mindsets when they are writing an article or when they are, you know, presenting on live-streamed news coverage. I mean, if you watch Hannity, if you're someone who reads both left and right-wing news sources, as as I do myself... I know right away what factors he's choosing to omit. And by choosing not to say something and present something is almost lying by not volunteering that information. And But the same thing happens when you watch MSNBC as well. So there needs to be better reciprocity and just journalistic integrity, I think, across the board. Okay, here's, here's I think, the difference between the right's fake news problem and the left's fake news, fake news problem. So when I watch, like, Rachel Maddow or something, I know her bias. She does not pretend to not have a bias. And... I feel like, okay, I'm learning something from her show, even if it's, even if I disagree with her opinions. Sean Hannity obviously takes things to the extreme, but the general phenomenon is true. He is not claiming to objectively report on stories, which is why I, I, am a little bit annoyed when he tries to, when he does interviews as, as a reporter, when it's, you know, that he's, he's friends with everyone in the administration, but okay. But the difference between the right's fake news problem and the left's fake news problem is that is that Fox News obviously has Fox and Friends, which caters in large part to the president, and has their primetime hour. But in their actual reporting, when you watch Dana Perino or Brett Baer, the coverage is not only, I think, indicative of what matters, but also extremely accurate. The left's fake news problem isn't Rachel Maddow. 
It isn't Chris Hayes. It's this rush to publish information like the Time Magazine cover that has not been properly vetted. And, okay, with this Time Magazine cover, everyone at this point has seen the image of the little girl crying and Time plopped it on their cover with photoshopped with clearly photoshopped like not like misrepresenting like what the scenario was but they they have a cutout of this of this young I think two-year-old girl from Honduras with President Trump looking down at her and it says welcome to America the point being that Trump is responsible for tearing parents away from their children then Daily Mail comes out with a report that demonstrates it's not Trump who ripped this two-year-old from her parents, it was the two-year-old's mother. So it sounds so from this report that it seems like now at this point other news outlets have corroborated, the girl, her name is Yanella. Her mother took the girl from her father and her siblings, hired a coyote for six thousand dollars to take her from Honduras to America just to seek economic opportunities and cross the border illegally for the second time, which means that this will no longer be just a misdemeanor crime. And not only did this happen, but the daughter and the mother are still together. They were not separated. They were stopped, but they were not separated. And so the girl just happened to be crying. Now, I understand the fact that she didn't get separated and the fact that over 2,000 children did get separated doesn't mean that this is less of a tragedy, but it does go to show you cannot have this easily like falsifiable story plopped on the cover of Time magazine and expect the mainstream media to not hear cries of fake news at these Trump rallies. So to me, I take this from a very different perspective. I think there were people outraged about this photo for a lot of different reasons. Some of them, I can get behind those arguments, but this particular one... I do not get behind. And this is a particular argument that was, you know, circulating all over Twitter, um, you know, predominantly from uh, conservatives calling out uh, the left media for fake news and misrepresenting this image. When I actually personally feel as though this image was not misrepresented at all in terms of my interpretation of the image. In my opinion, looking at this image, looking at this photograph of this girl looking up, seeing her mother uh, being frisked by a border patrol agent, what that emits is the fear in her eyes. She's crying. She's looking up. It is a fearful, horrifying image because you can see what she is experiencing and what she is feeling in that moment. And I think the image isn't of her being separated from her mother and in a detention center, then you'd think that, oh, she's by herself, she's behind bars by herself, or whatever it may be. The image is just of her having first crossed the border, interacting with U.S. Border Patrol agents, and her crying, and in, and in total fear. And so, I think what this image represents more than anything, regardless of what her personal outcome is, is the fear that these children are experiencing crossing the border. Because in that moment of time, when that picture was took, we do not, we, the photographer uh, for Getty Images, he did not know what her fate would be. And he's done, gone on to do a lot of interviews saying, at that moment, it really just took me aback. I became very emotional because I did not know what the fate would be for this family. And I have a young child that's of similar age to this girl. So at that moment, when that photo was taken, I think it's only representative of 
that very moment in and of itself and just the fear that's experienced for these kids who are voiceless. When you're a young kid being taken by your parents yeah. across the border, you don't have a choice. You're just following mom or dad or whoever's bringing you across. And so I think all it portrays to me is the fear that these kids experience and the uncertainty of what is to ensue. Because... She could have very well been separated from her mother. She was one of the lucky ones who didn't, and thank God that that didn't happen to her. But at the same time, I don't think it's a misrepresentation because that could be that's that's the face of any kid who's coming okay, through. Okay, but, but okay, it's a misrepresentation for two reasons. One, the boring reason, which everyone's talking about, is for the literal reasons of of of, of this did not of she did not actually get separated. I just don't think okay, that's but, like but, an okay, accurate okay, argument. But 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 for me, the issue is the cover is blaming Trump. We have always had borders. We have, we have had ICE agents for decades, and we have enforced our borders for centuries. So the fact that that this this woman who took her child from her father, and the father said, "I never got the chance to say goodbye to my daughter, and now all I can do is wait." To be fair, we don't know what their personal Which, circumstances well, were. I, yeah, and, and obviously, Daily Mail's article only interviewed the father. But from what it sounds like, they were not seeking. The mother did not take the daughter to seek asylum from violence of any kind. Instead, she crossed over using an illegal coyote, knowing the risk that she was putting her child in. And luckily, thank God, as they should be, they're being held together. They should be. But when you describe the fear in her eyes, which obviously is legitimate, and again, I, I am placing, I, I, not that I should even have to stipulate this, but obviously, the, the two-year-old girl has no moral culpability for this. This is not her fault. I feel every sympathy for her, and I think that she should be with her parents. But it is the mother's fault she she knowingly broke the law with no plausible reason that she would be granted but it should be granted asylum from violence and and just to frame especially on this time magazine cover that it's trump's fault for enforcing a border when obama was known for a while as the deporter in chief i mean like i don't think there's no bad reason to deport this woman and her child i don't think it was crucifying trump per se for enforcing the border i think it was juxtaposing him over the girl no it was it was was calling him out for the zero tolerance family separation immigration policy and so that's what everyone was up in arms about that's why he had to write an executive order meanwhile two days before he was trying to support himself that's why he took that huge political beating and what this was about was not him trying to strengthen the borders it was his execution in doing so resulting in family separation because of this zero tolerance policy and so i think that's what it's about it's not about trump versus immigrants in my opinion what i took from it was it's trump's policy which was an obvious clear moral mistake and I think should be a clear political mistake. And that's what this is about. That's why it's portraying the image of the girl frightened. Because the image of the girl could be any of the other girls that have been taken from their parents. As a result of and, this zero tolerance okay. policy. It's not that I think you're wrong. It's that I think you're being generous with your interpretation. So it, it, it comes down to, I think, like the ethos of what you're saying is correct. However... If you talk to any of these people who go to these Trump rallies, 
And they, they feel in tone the media talking down to them and their jobs and their industries that are that are economically declining. They feel it, you know? And when these stories are written acting like caring about the border is silly and that Trump is literally Hitler and that when, when you see reporters, objective journalists, tweeting out comparisons of Melania to Eva Braun, it not only makes a mockery of the Holocaust, obviously this is not the Holocaust, like even if you want to compare this to Japanese internment, that, that still is not equitable. The fact is that if you have a cover photo blaming Trump for something that would have happened under any other president for the last two decades, if not three, I understand why people then turn towards these tinfoil hat conspiracy websites. And that's bad. I am someone who is in journalism. I try to report objective stories when I do not do commentary. And I, I mean, I was on the 1791L podcast a couple days ago, and the entire comment section was just about how I was this liberal feminist thought conservative. And I would like fewer people to believe that. I would like more people to be able to trust the news as it is written. But that will only happen when the media demands precision and when they don't obsess over the stupidest, stupidest stories, such as the Melania jacket controversy. Okay, also just one more point on that. I I just, like, I don't see it as something that Time Magazine was blaming Trump for that could have happened under any president. It would have only happened under any other president if they had implemented this zero-tolerance policy, which was completely at their Enforcing demand. Enforcing the Obama law. didn't do it. Bush didn't do it. Clinton didn't do it. Bush Sr. didn't do it. I mean, families were still detained under Obama's law. It was just, it was just, but this, this zero tolerance policy within six weeks, over 2,000 kids being detained, that was the story. And that's why Time but, chose okay. to write about but it. Are you, but are if you, that wasn't are you the story, Time would have made, if that wasn't the story, Time magazine would have made this cover when DACA was the thing. But then, but then, then you have to admit that Time magazine has an agenda to advocate for not enforcing our own border policies. To advocate for not enforcing our own border policies? We just yeah. wrote an executive order that rescinded the zero tolerance policy. And no, no, the executive order did not rescind the zero tolerance policy. But, like, it policy. took away the policy that was separating these families. Yes, Sorry. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, but my point being, okay, let's say hypothetically... So let's say okay. So there are two hypotheticals, or not hypotheticals, but there are two. There are two ways that that encounter with this with the specific girl in this photo could have gone. One, the mother could have been detained, and the daughter could have been then separated and taken to an HHS facility. You and I both agree that would have been bad and that would have been wrong. The secondary or the second possibility are the daughter and the mother being kept together in in detainment. And then there's a third possibility that was occurring under the Obama administration where you get a slap on the wrist, you're told, here's your court date, go out into the wild, and they never show up. Trump, in... Under the in, Obama, in, 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 under in, the in Obama actual, policy, a lot of the times, too, they had pro- programs through DHS where it was almost like you're on parole, you had an electronic ankle monitor, and you had an officer of that you had to check in their, with, and, and they could digitally locate you from anywhere. But forty, but that does not change the fact that, that the statistics show that 40% of the people under these catch-and-release policies never showed up to their court dates. Yeah, no, I just wanted to make it clear that it wasn't like, here you go, we're not going to try to put any policies in place. Yeah, but, but, but even, okay, even if the the intent was good. The fact is, it resulted in 40% of the people never even showing up to their court dates. And that is significant. And if Trump, if 
and again, I am not an immigration hawk. I am not at all. But I understand the administration has a has a popular mandate to fulfill some of its campaign prom- promises, and that includes actually enforcing our border. And that will not be possible if we institute if, if we res- if we go back to catch and release policies, which, quite frankly, this is this executive order could result in because because according to the Ninth Circuit ruling, it is illegal for the federal government to be detaining children with their parents according to the Flores Agreement. However, I think that Trump is Trump is sort of taking a gamble here, hoping that the Senate and the House do actually come to a legislative compromise that in effect, makes his executive order law from the legislative branch. But that is still a gamble. Well, that, what, could not, that could not pan out if Schumer gets his way. What I would love to see the research on, although I know it's probably almost impossible to compile this data, would be, I wonder what the economic cost is for enforcing so strictly this zero-tolerance policy oh, and having to... It's and having high. to pay to detain all these people, pay for facilities, uh, oh, from people an to patrol them, this versus, is garbage. versus what would happen if, when you initially detain people and you vet them, you find out these are people legitimately seeking asylum, and you let them out and hope they come back for their court date. I wonder what the different economic costs are to America in that regard. Oh, oh, it, 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 it which I mean, is the cheapest option like, would be open borders, screening only for criminal activity. That would obviously, and and that's and that's where a lot of like Rothbardian like li- like libertarians come from. And it's, that's an that's an argument that I'm very open to. That the economic argument is obviously against the prospect of zero tolerance. Well, it's however, just however, however, and, and even however, when you're Trump is president and, and he's allowed like to have that, policy. Like, this, is, this is just like taking such a big chunk of the budget, in my I'm, opinion. I'm sure it's under 1%. And the court but, system in in the U.S. is already so clogged as it is. Uh, it's just going to be really interesting to see how they even manage this and work through it moving forward, I think. Um They've definitely dug themselves in a big hole, and I don't think the resources were necessarily there for this strict enforcement No, they weren't. Mechanism. The rollout was garbage. I think what I would like, moving forward, is for there to be asylum granted, just as it was, you know, a few weeks ago before Jeff Sessions put this into place, where people could be considered for asylum if you're fleeing gang violence, if you're fleeing domestic violence, because then... All those people who have come here for legitimate reasons. You know what? I would like to think if I was born in one of these countries and if I were living under those circumstances, there was some safe place that I could run to. At the end of the day, America has always been looked to as the land of freedom, as the land of opportunity, as the place of safety and the beacon of hope for people across the world. And for the United States to be tainting that reputation I think is extremely unfortunate because I think morally, from a moral argument, that's, you know, the most impeccable reputation that you can have. And so to have this, you know, it's not the zero tolerance on illegal immigration that really gets me. It's the fact that people who legally try to come into this country fleeing for legitimate reasons are going to be turned around. And morally... How do you justify that? And I know it's about politics. I know it's about economics. But at the end of the day, we're all humans making these decisions, too. And I could get on board with so many Republican arguments for immigration. I could get on board with a zero-tolerance policy for breaking the law and entering illegally 
if Republicans allowed people seeking asylum an actual pathway to safety and to asylum in the United States, because it's a catch-22 right now. And so I don't think there's any really wiggle room for argument on that Republicans are doing the right thing or that Congress in and of itself is doing the right thing until people are somehow able to flee. But it's not the Republicans in Congress who are doing the wrong thing, considering it's Ted Cruz is the one who proposed. I mean, this isn't even Ted Cruz trying to bargain to get something that he wants for 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 making sure that children aren't separated from their parents. Ted Cruz offered clean legislation and Schumer's the one who rejected it. I mean, the grand irony being that, like, I mean, at the end I of the mean, day, it's attorney general. I mean, the Jeff grand Sessions irony being that all I, this. I mean, the grand irony being that the only thing I care about is not paying for people. I mean, the way I see it, shut off all funding that goes to that goes to non-citizens, shut off CHIP funding, shut off funding to public health centers that go to non-citizens, and let in anyone who's not a criminal. That's all I care about. I don't really, I like, honestly, like, I don't care about what language you speak. I don't, like, no. Well, I'm, this I'm, is, this and is, this is the reason why the alt-right was, I think, crapping on me hard in the, in the comments of this 1791 podcast I was doing. But, but I just think, j- j- just the grand irony of Democrats sort of speaking out of both sides of their mouths of acting like it's only about family separation. But then the second that Trump signs the executive order because Chuck Schumer shut down the Senate proceedings to vote on the Cruz legislation, it's now about, but why would you enforce this law in the first place by forcing children in these jails? Because we have a border, because Trump won the presidency against my will. I did not vote for Trump. I did not support him in the primaries. I am. I was. I was much more favorable towards towards Rand Paul or Marco Rubio, two two candidates who were very pro immigration. Rubio was a part of the Gang of Eight, but the fact is is that they did not win. Trump won. It is up to him to decide what the immigration policy is, or or to decide what the immigration policy enforcement is, and then it is up to Congress to legislate. And if Congress wants to twiddle the thumbs all day, and if they want to allow more and more children to be separated from their parents, that is on them. Well, what my plea to Republicans is, if you're advocating for better use of taxpayer dollars, if you're advocating for lower taxes, if you're advocating for... But given the tariffs, that's clearly not what Trump is doing. Trump's not talking about the bottom dollar. No, I'm, I'm not talking about Trump. I'm talking I'm talking about Republicans in general. Because but, okay, that, is, there's that is a... Between, there's a huge difference between Jeff Sessions, who is clearly advocating for this family separation policy, and Ted Cruz, who is clearly not. No, I'm, I'm just saying in general... To Republicans, what I'm arguing, and I want, like, I would, I would hope, I want all Republican representatives to be able to get behind this way of thinking. I'm not talking about Trump. I'm not talking about Jeff Sessions. You can't really control them. But I would like them to understand, you know what, why would we be spending such an immense amount of money on detaining all these people with a zero-tolerance policy when we can be allowing people asylum for gang violence, for domestic violence. And if you do that, you'll have such a far less number of people that you will have to pay to detain, go through all of those immense judicial judicial proceedings, and at the end of the day, it'll be such a more effective use of money. That's my plea to Republican leaders across the United States, or even just Republican voters. That's what I believe should happen. And that's not a Democratic argument. That's a, that's the a economic rep- bottom dollar? Then, okay, great. Then now let's do universal health care. This is why, this is, uh, like, politics are not solely economic. And I say this as someone who spent four long years getting a BS in this BS. And I am someone who focuses on the economics more than anything. My gateway drug to conservatism was not the Bible. It was not any of the social stuff. It was 
purely Milton Friedman. It was purely Hayek. And it's just, and even though I view the immigration debate as a matter of dollars and cents and criminality, most people don't. And I think that especially us being from metropolitan areas surrounded by people with a cosmopolitan way of thinking need to be mindful of the fact that this president was voted in with a very specific mandate about the border that may or may not be the most economically wise. We already know that's not. Yeah, from, I just from, 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 from I just think the asylum policy, considering it's something that's come into place like in less than the last month, is just completely unnecessary. Well, it was April, and I'll leave it at that. I mean, it was April, but um, okay, two months. Yeah, and, and and don't get me wrong. I mean, I've spent more of the last month on Twitter, probably sounding like a hardcore liberal than anything else, but. Um, with regards to our next topic at hand, which will be all about Turning Point USA, Candace Owens, Me Too, and whatnot. But I, I just do think that this is one where, where the media botched it, the White House botched it, and no one comes out better out of this until actual legislation is passed and these kids can be lawfully reunited with their parents. So the Turning Point USA story, if you have not been following... So Turning Point USA is a large national organization ran by Charlie Kirk... Um, that focuses on conservative campus activism, organizing large speaking engagements with lots of speakers who I love, people like Ben Shapiro, Kat Timpf, um, really pioneers, I think, in conservative media today. So the reason why they're in hot water for two related reasons, and it's sort of a domino effect. So I think it was the beginning of last week, uh, and actually, no, I guess it was 10 days ago. Candace Owens, who is the uh, communications director of Turning Point USA, originally she was called the director of urban outreach, whatever that means. But anyway, she tweeted out, the entire premise of Me Too is that women are stupid, weak, and inconsequential. Too stupid to know what men might, might want if you come to their hotel room late at night. Too weak to turn around and tell someone not to touch your ass again. Too inconsequential to realize this. Because I've already discussed this at length on Twitter and um, on the 1791L show, Pod Ruin America, that I just did, uh, and and I know tons of people. This is, At this point, this is, again, 10-day-old news. I will just—the only main points I'm going to make about this tweet in particular is, one, the hotel room thing is pulled straight from the Weinstein allegations in which women would go to his hotel room under the guise of meeting him for business meetings and then were horrifically raped the lack of knowledge and sensitivity going into phrasing that line is monumental and quite frankly pathetic. And then also the insinuation that the entire Me Too movement is built on the premise that women are weak and inconsequential is insulting to every woman who I think has found empowerment from this, which I think has been a very not, it's been diverse, not just in terms of like the obvious demography of it, but also just politically, it has been victims of Al Franken and victims of um, Roy of, of Roy Moore. You know, it, it's not like it's sexual assault doesn't know a political bias. People across the aisle are guilty of it, and just to and just to just to act like this is this is like a political movement that is anti-conservative is laughable, considering that considering that perpetrators hide behind many colors. You know. So the reason why this controversy became such a big deal is not because Candace put out one bad tweet, which we've all done, especially when you're tweeting on the Uber on the way home from the club. You know, we've all tweeted like about just Uber conversations and woken up and been like, oh, maybe I was being a little bit too aggressive, whatever. 
It's that she doubled down on it and started blocking everyone who was questioning her and committed to the fact that Candace's whole shtick is that she's not a victim, she's a victor, and that's great. And I agree that it's not helpful to think about a victimhood mentality. It's the reason why, for instance, I say the patriarchy is not a useful concept because it applies blame to all men rather than people who actually perpetrate discrimination and assault. So I agree. It's important not to embrace a victimhood mentality, not to think of women as an underclass of men. However, to reject the experiences and the feelings of every woman who has found empowerment or meaning in the Me Too movement and to claim that they're indulging in their victimhood for being victims of actual rape and actual workplace harassment is insulting and insensitive and, quite frankly, egregious for a communications director of all things. Um, the reason why I'm bringing this up on this podcast 10 days after it happened, other than the fact that... I don't even know why she town. brought it up, too. Like, because out of nowhere. It's the outrage machine. It's the outrage machine, and this is my problem. She just with, shot with, herself with, in the foot. This is, this is my problem with a lot of what's happening on the right. So, you have people who I think... The right... All right, so, for instance, um, just to, like, bring up random people who I love and who I think touch on the fact that liberals get triggered way too easily there's a lot of liberal hypocrisy but without just saying stuff just to own the libs there are people like guy benson who i think nail the hypocrisy of um of the left but but turning points entire shtick sometimes it just seems like it's almost like a second generation of what milo yiannopoulos did but less fashionable and less funny like, Milo said stuff that was deeply offensive. He would get a rise out of people. He would also be able to elicit a single laugh from me while doing it, while wearing pretty on-point Gucci. Turning Point <laughs> USA's... I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Tur- like, and, and I'm not saying that, that it, his, 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 his rhetoric on race was obviously unforgivable and whatnot. But I'm just saying it was, he was him being a provocateur to elicit a reaction. But at least he was kind of funny and... It's for the best that he is no longer a part of the mainstream of this movement, obviously, because he says of those deeply offensive to racial minorities and to women. But Turning Point USA's thing, it's like, I just think when you have a large group like this, and as Avery and I were in charge of a lot of events for USA's Young Americans for Liberty Club... We do, guys. I'm not just a lefty Democrat. No, no, no. Avery believes in liberty. That's why you're a liberal, not a lefty. There's a huge (laughs) difference. But I think that even though, yes, we had some events that were specific to to our coalition of people. Like, I don't think that like we're going to bring over any like hardcore liberals to go to a shooting range with us. But we still tried to have actual debates. We had Pat Harris versus Austin Peterson. We had Michael Schellenberger, who was running as a Democrat in California, but was just an interesting Democrat who cared about nuclear power my thing with turning point usa is there's a lot of cash in 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 the trump base there is a lot of cash and trump is someone who uniquely was able to capitalize on it and enact policy change by winning the presidency however he needs to win a second term and i just don't know if the best way to do that is just by refueling his let's say trump trump's approval rating right now is 45 percent which is really high, all things considered. Let's say 20% of the people... I wouldn't call it really high, but it's better than expected. All things considered. All things considered. Let's say... Let's, I think... I, I hypothesize that Trump's base, 
the people who will always vote for him no matter what, is 20% of voting age Americans. Well, the good thing I about Trump's base is their demographic are people who consistently vote older white. Yeah, yeah. Rather yeah. than, you know, Democrats' demographic, it's a little, up, like, it's uh, to be determined if they will come out to vote yeah. this election cycle. Yeah. And it really depends on who the candidate is. No, that's definitely true. But, the re- but I bring that up simply because if catering specifically to the base that will always come out to vote for him, that will always want to trigger the libs, that will always want to defend the cons, is not an electoral strategy. And I think that just, every, like I said, everyone has a bad tweet. And according to Roseanne Barr, that huh. tweet is under the influence of Ambien, which I don't agree with. But, 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 but the point is, people say stuff that's tone deaf. Although, when, when, when Ambien can, doesn't make you racist. No, no, it does not. No, it does not. Um, and... Candace, alcohol does not make you a rape apologist. So my main problem with this is that there was no attempt to clarify a legitimate reason for her grievances with Me Too. I think that, and I said this again on 1791 else, if you listen to that podcast, I am sorry for reiterating a lot of points that I already made, but just I know that they're overlapping, there are different audiences for both of these. I think there's a legitimate case to be made, like what Christina Hoff Summer says, like with what Kathy Young says, that perhaps the mandate of Me Too extends too far, ignores the idea of due process, ignores the idea of burden of proof is on the accuser. I think that's a fair point, even though I disagree with it, because I just don't think that there are many instances of Me Too going too far. However, Candace did not say that. All she said is that it assumes that women want to be victims, is it assumes that women don't have, what, like, the guts to say no to people who are harassing them. It's so... Oh, my God. Okay, wow. I just think for someone that is in a prominent position, in a role of leadership, at a And is a role model to tons of young conservatives. She's half a million followers on Twitter. Yeah, like, a role model for conservatives. Come up with a more educated critique than that. Because Tiana and I critique the future of Me Too and if it's ethics on our podcast all the time. But we do that from an academic perspective. We do that from one of reason, from not one of an animated, bigoted, stupid viewpoint. Sorry to say that that way, but that's the case. And so for her to tweet this, and as Tiana said, not critique, you know, where it's left people behind, not critique the scope of it, anything that that may be. And just simply critique females as one herself and critique victims. I just, like, I don't know where her head was at. I mean, maybe she'll come out, do a Roseanne Barr thing, say she's on Ambien, but there's honestly, like, it's indefensible. If she came out and critiqued it for the point that a lot of people make in that the Me Too movement is making it so that women are maybe less likely to be employed because men are scared to employ women or that it's making it so that we are not following due process in that people are just believing things as soon as they hear them. Okay, I would be receptive to those viewpoints if you could back them up with a cognizant argument or a complete argument rather. But just to say all of these unwarranted, unmerited accusations and assumptions, I just think is completely offside. Yeah, okay. And I'm going to end at least what I will say with this. So if anyone at Turning Point USA is hearing this, and, and mind you, a lot of the campus heads of this, I think were extremely vocal and 
commendable for speaking out against what Candace said. But if anyone, yeah, but, but if anyone at the core of this organization hears this, no, you don't need to send Richard Mills to harass me on Twitter. I do not care. I do not need to have him quote tweeting everything in my feed. No, instead, Candace, my offer still stands. I invited Candace to come onto the podcast if she wanted to have an actual debate about about the ethics of Me Too. I'm totally fine doing that. No personal insults, nothing. Just an actual discussion about the merits of Me Too. You're still more than welcome to do this. I know that you've blocked me, Candace, because I apparently you couldn't handle the heat, but my DMs are open and feel free to DM me if you're interested in coming onto this podcast. That's all I'm going to end it with because I believe... I just can't believe she did that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, like, I think I blocked maybe, like, my ex-boyfriend and, like, once, like, a bot that was just, like, messaging me all the time and it was just irritating to see it show up. I think that's it. I think I've blocked two people in my entire and, life. And Trump and, uh, or blocked Chrissy Teigen, so there That's go. funny. Oh, my God. Anyway, but yeah, so, so Candace, the snowflake slayer, the not a victim, if you would like to actually come onto this podcast and have an actual debate because I think that Turning Point is a lot of potential and if you guys want to live up to it and if you guys want to actually have a great conversation in America I am here for it but uh, if not you know best of luck and I hope that you do justice to the women who you claim to represent and on that note Tiana and I are going to pour ourselves another drink get on with our Friday night as you guys should as well and your weekends um, always be sure to follow us on Twitter at Tiana the First at Avery Hogarth and check out our website, political pregame, thepoliticalpregame.com. Um, and do, give us a subscribe or follow or review, comment on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Bye.